Your article is titled Gaza as an Archive, Another Metaphor for Gaza. And you write towards the conclusion of your article, quote, Gaza 2014 in its continuities and ruptures is an instance of the archive that is the Palestinian condition. Tell us more about this archive or the idea of the archive that is the Palestinian condition that you try to develop in your article about Gaza. What for me was a powerful way to think about this moment to survive the kind of deep challenge that it posed to all of us was to think about, again, how this particular instance conjured all of these various moments and how that all these various attempts of decolonization are actually resisting the possibility that Palestinians could never exist. And what I'm trying to suggest here is that it's not just active resistance that are expressing this Palestinian condition. It's also the very possibility of archiving, the very possibility of putting together these moments. And I think the accumulation of these historical experiences of both colonialism and decolonization does this work, and that the archives is one of destruction and uprising, death and life, loss and accumulation. And it's for these reasons that I think that Gaza is not exceptional, that it's actually one instance of a broader condition that is the Palestinian condition. You are listening to Professor Samara Smear's conversation with Professor Helga Tawil Suri and Professor Shireen Saikli about the new text, Gaza as a Metaphor. The book explores what Gaza contributes to our understanding of exception, inequality, dispossession, and how Gaza is a metaphor for faraway humanitarian disaster or a location of incomprehensible violence. Let me turn to Saeed Shahadi. Said, conventional views on trauma posit the experience of trauma that a person or a collectivity undergoes as an experience that is external to the force that unleashed trauma. In Gaza's case, the conventional view would posit trauma as a side effect of war. But your argument in your article in this collection on Gaza departs from this wisdom significantly. You suggest that the Israeli war on Gaza was, quote, designed to engineer trauma on a massive scale and amounts to mass torture. Can you elaborate on this argument? And how do you see this engineering of trauma unfolding and taking place? Sama, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be 
on this call and also part of this great set of uh, writers in this book. When talking about trauma, maybe I can just frame it. Usually references to trauma or traumatic experiences somehow imply that people are also diagnosed as suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder or some other psychiatric problems uh, as a result of some form of extreme stress or suffering. I just want to make clear that a lot of the point I try to make in this uh, essay is really to talk about the intended effect of the colonializer, the occupier, Israel in this case, and what the intended suffering that was caused. And this is from kind of testimonies and experiences I gathered talking to uh, people coming out of Gaza and trying to learn from their experience and see what their lived experience was. In terms of uh, looking at the, the feeling that were generated by the psychological realities, and usually when people talk about the realities of war in Gaza, they usually mention the numbers of casualties, number of buildings destroyed, the infrastructure, the statistics of children and women. But what is not captured usually is the reality on, on the ground, the sense of helplessness and hopelessness and that nobody will be able to help them. If we systematically look at the type of assaults that were engineered on this enclaved and enclosed population, you would see that there's a lot of the experiences that we see that happens in interrogation settings. And that's where I kind of call upon the metaphor of torture or the idea of mass torture because a lot of the experiences of Gazans during the war was that of extreme fear for their lives, not being able to have any control over their lives, the sense of uncontrollability, unpredictability, also all these physical disruption in their lives, including sleep deprivation and exposure to dead bodies, not allowing uh, people to be evacuated, bodies to be evacuated from the streets, and all done in a way that just increases the intensity of this psychological horror for people living there. And having it uh, on a prolonged scale, that the only sense I have from any purpose or reasoning for it is really to try and break the spirit of uh, Gazans during the war. And by the spirit of Gazans, I mean the spirit of resistance, the unbreakable sentiment that even the most affected of uh, Gazans that came out of Gaza and actually went back to live in these conditions, they all had the sense that they were on the right side of justice and that what they were refusing in many ways is this control by Israel, almost a totalitarian control over their lives. And even though the vast, vast majority of Gazans were not actively involved in the resistance, but just the ability to stand with the resistance and to defy the uh, Israeli colonial control over their lives, I see it as a form of samud, which is mm-hmm. steadfastness, the ability mm-hmm. to withstand the torture of the occupier and to be able to stay resistant to it. So, Said, you point to 
what you call a paradigmatic shift in the colonial policy of Israel towards Gaza, that in the 2014 assault was one that was significantly different from past assaults. Can you explain more this difference? You write that there is a shift from managing and controlling the resistance to attempts at destroying it psychologically, mainly by breaking the Palestinian psyche. Yes, this is actually my kind of attempt to try and make sense of horrifying events that is actually hard to uh, understand the reason for it. And it's really trying to understand from all the mainstream media statements made by politicians and Israeli politicians and uh, news people and trying to figure out what was their objective. And I think for weeks on end, there was this ongoing empty debates within Israeli media to try and bring all these different experts and try and understand so what exactly was the objective. And really, there was no clear military objective in terms of how the bombings and the bombardments that happened and were ongoing. Because once you destroy the infrastructure and destroy schools and mosques and buildings, and you keep bombing them on and over and over again, the only thing that makes most sense in terms of the continued bombardment of the population is that it's used as a form of uh, punishment, as a form of putting pressure on the Gazan population to denounce Hamas and to have them come out to the street and be against the resistance and be against Hamas as a party that's ruling Gaza and is also kind of calling, adding the voice of resistance during the war. In many ways, these were calls that were made throughout the Israeli media that were calling on Gazan people to come out. And a lot of the pamphlets that were given out and the text messages and the targeted media messages by the Israeli Shabbat, the Secret Service, was actually to get people and put pressure on them to either coerce them to collaborate with the occupation against their fellow residents, and uh, on the other hand, also to have them come out and feel and put pressure on Hamas and go against the idea of resistance. And from here, it's really a matter of reading in between the lines and seeing that there is no real military objective except to try and get people and the population as a whole in such a broken mental state so that they will no longer be able to sustain their resistance, seeing that they weren't able to break the military resistance. I think the only thing that was left at that point was to try and break the population. You have a very evocative sentence. You write, quote, the elimination of the natives' resistance was deemed largely an aspirational goal without committing genocide proper. I thought that sentence was very telling. But let me move now to the title of your essay, which is Gaza as Sumud, or in English, Gaza as Resilience. This title and the concluding paragraph of your essay and even the subtext of the essay complement but also depart from other metaphors used in this book, such as the zoo, the open prison, and so on and so forth. The metaphor of sumud or resilience shifts the perspective of the reader from what Israel does to how Palestinians live, respond, and act. And I want to read 
the last few lines from your essay and invite you to offer some thoughts. You write, Gaza is a model for steadfastness and resistance against violent colonial occupation, which Gaza imparts to us after paying the ultimate price in bloodshed, pain, and suffering. It would behove us then to learn from Gazans how to be resilient and protect our communities from extreme political trauma, however meticulously engineered by the Israeli war generals. End quote. Now, I wondered, what are your thoughts about resilience? And is this the only answer to mass trauma and mass torture? Or perhaps to put the question slightly differently, are you suggesting that resistance is indeed not only legitimate effort, but is in fact a necessity and the only answer to mass trauma? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think I, I would uh, agree with that. Um, I mean, the, the context of everything we're talking about is the con- uh, context of uh, a colonial occupation, occupation that is here to uh, replace uh, us Palestinians living on the land. And um, I, I think especially in that context, the what is left in terms of dealing whether we're talking about kind of coping as a community or as individuals, psychologically, socially, is really a matter of uh, responding to that colonial occupation. And while there might be different schools, or, or uh, especially here in Palestine, there might be different approaches, uh, some that, that might choose to look at Palestinians in general and specifically Gazans as victims of war, victims of a humanitarian crisis, and people that were bombed mercilessly into being mentally broken down. My experience of what I saw, and I have to say I saw, uh, I wasn't able to go into Gaza and experience it myself during the war or after, but from the Gazans that I did meet and from colleagues that actually went there and interacted and worked with Gazans on providing kind of like a social support, you did not see this mental breakdown that I think was intended by this whole war campaign. You did not see people kind of tear into each other, into the the fabric of uh, the community. On the contrary, people were able to come together and deal with humor and deal with kind of this very generous and benevolence between them. And they were able to come together, really, and and help each other in many ways. And you would see that in the hospitals where they would come and and offer each other help. And that is a model, as far as I'm concerned, coming kind of at that time I was coming back to Palestine, to the homeland, after kind of a decade of not being here. And you really are humbled by the strength of people that go through an experience like that. And I figured that there's a lot for us to learn from from it. And um, I think the choice specifically for Sumud as a metaphor, I think it's uh, particularly uh, appropriate because Sumud is uh, a concept that is used or originally was used in terms of being able to resist kind of the torture of interrogators and and, uh, in prisons. And Gaza in many ways turned into a torture chamber where they're trying to kind of break the spirit of resistance to this colonial occupier. And I think the intended goal is all of Palestinians to give up this 
dream of liberating Palestine and resisting Israeli colonialism. And Gaza is the place that is the symbol of that. That's where the war is today around the issue of resistance. There's pockets in the West Bank and within 48 Palestine that has periodic and kind of sporadic resistance to that occupation. But really, Gaza is the place that has this kind of more elaborate, more theatrical, more pronounced type of uh, resistance that I think the occupier is very much concerned about. And that's why they're trying very, very hard to break it. Because once they break Gaza's mood, I think the rest of Palestine will fall in that sense that the most resistant of Palestinians are now broken up or gave up the idea of resistance. Well, so I think there's a lot for us to learn so that we can grow strong as I see husbands, husbands in that sense. So let me conclude now with this moment in time, with 2016. Palestinians have once again commemorated the 1948 Nakba. Some did so as if it was an event of the past, and others used the calendar date to highlight the Nakba as an ongoing condition. What are your thoughts, the three of you, thoughts on Gaza during the week of Nakba? We can begin with Shirin. I think for me, the as you said, the emphasis on the ongoing nature, which again speaks to some of the points that I was suggesting earlier, the kind of condition, the, the ongoing sort of struggle against what is now a century-long effort to really settle and colonize Palestine. I think also for me, it is very important to think about the Palestinian Nakba in the context of the Syrian Nakba, the Iraqi Nakba, the Yemeni Nakba that we are in at this moment to really think through the possibilities of solidarity for the future. Helga? Yeah, I think I would echo a lot of what uh, Shereed has said. Uh, You know, on the one hand, I don't, I recognize that there's an importance to that date, but to also kind of move away from that number, right? Of kind of recognizing that this is a moment in a much longer history, um, and to also not fall prey to marginalizing Gaza even more because of the other catastrophes that are going on that, that Shireen just alluded to, right? So that a lot of the world's focus today is on what's going on in Syria or Iraq and then thus uh, forgetting about Palestine and forgetting about Gaza even more. So to kind of, you know, to to make sure that when these uh, commemorative events, even when they are... Um, you know, negative, if I can call it that, that we also kind of position what needs to be remembered in the larger context. Said? I agree kind of with everything that was said. I just would add that the idea of commemorating an event in history as as big and momental as the Nakba implies that the Nakba is is done and it's over and we're we're revisiting it by memory and in our spirits. I think in many ways this is not the case. The Nakba is an ongoing event that has not ended over the past 68 years and it's ongoing. And it's unfortunate, I think, in many ways because I was able to kind of experience the commemoration of Nakba Day here in Palestine and really, the shift that you're start, starting to see more, and that's very disconcerting, is the fact that the commemorations are starting to become kind of more cultural events, and, and you have all kinds of singers and, and people that uh, go out to the street and kind of look at it in, in some ways as if it's, it's a done deal, that it's something in, in our past. 
and not as an opportunity, actually, to reignite kind of the resistance and to be able to continue kind of the liberation of Palestine and not just delude ourselves that it is an event in our history because it's an ongoing event. Helga Tawil Suri is an associate professor of media, culture, and communication at New York University and the co-editor of the recently published volume, Gaza as a Metaphor. Shireen Saikali is an assistant professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She is the author of Men of Capital, Scarcity and Economy in Mandate Palestine. The book examines British-ruled Palestine in the 1930s and 1940s through a focus on economy. Dr. Saeed Shahadeh is a clinical psychologist. Dr. Saeed Shahadeh and Professor Shirin Saikali are two of the contributors to the new book, Gaza as a Metaphor. The book explores what Gaza contributes to our understanding of exception, inequality, dispossession, and how Gaza is a metaphor for faraway humanitarian disaster or a location of incomprehensible violence. For a status, I am Malihe Razazan. Thanks for listening.